hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is composer Craig Courtney, a native of Indiana, now residing in Ohio. Craig is a current music editor for Beckenhorst Press. Studying piano and chamber music, he earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree at the University of Cincinnati. And at this point in time, Craig's published works include more than 200 choral octavos, nine vocal collections, a piano solo collection, and six extended works for choir and orchestra. He has been a frequent recipient of the ASCAP Achievement Awards, and his composition, Peace I Give to You, was awarded first place in the 2003 John Nesbeck Foundation competition. Craig Courtney, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I would like to start today with your work with Beckenhorst Press. So I understand that you knew and worked with the founder of the company, John Nesbeck. How did you meet him? Okay, well... uh... I lived in Austria for six years. I happened to be born there during the occupation after the war. Really? And yeah. And so going back was kind of a dream of mine. Uh, and there happened to be a position open, which I didn't get. Uh, but I knocked on the door of the oboe teacher and he had me accompany, sight read some accompaniments, took me to the clarinet teacher. And a couple of years later, they called me to Austria for a position at the Mozartam. And I was there for six years. A lot, uh, lot of international students come there because of the conservatory. We belong to a little church, a lot of musicians in it. And so forming impromptu choirs was kind of a natural thing just for fun. You know, no, nothing serious about it. But I couldn't get hold of English language music. So I just started writing what we sang and had this guinea pig choir of very musical people who were young so their voices blended and for probably four years i'd write something we'd try it i'd kind of evaluate afterwards and think hmm you know maybe if i'd gone to three part in that middle verse it would have been better so the next piece i would try something different and basically learn to write that way Mm -hmm. Um, so eventually my music came to the attention of john nesbeck and he published Thy Will Be Done, which is my first published piece, my, my biggest selling anthem. Um, and two years later, he was diagnosed with brain and lung cancer. Called to ask if I would take his place as music editor, which I'd never edited. So I didn't even know what that involved exactly. Um, he was in Columbus. I was in Salzburg. So I flew over, spent a few days with him. He was very sick in chemo and radiation. So I I could only be with him maybe 15, 20 minutes at a time. I just wanted to find out what in the world I would be doing if I accepted the job. So uh, accepted it. We sold everything we had, quit the job, flew back to the United States, thinking that John would live a few more months to break me in. My dad greeted us at the airport and said, John died two days ago. Wow. 
So I'd never edited in my life. So I had a very scary first year of not knowing what I was doing, you know, <laughs> and if, if I, uh, if I choose pieces that sell well, then we make money. If I choose pieces that don't, then that's not so good. So there's a lot of pressure on the music editor. Um, so I kind of, it was a trial by fire. Yeah. Well, you must've made quite the impression on him if he wanted you to succeed him after just knowing you, knowing your music for just a couple of years. So. It's amazing because I was, I was unknown. Nobody yeah. other than maybe three published pieces, nobody knew who I was. Wow. Uh, so yeah, he had some kind of foresight that is kind of inexplicable, you know? Well, that's awesome. Well, I want to go back a, a little bit further. So I read right. online that you started playing piano when you were only three years old. Right. Were you naturally gifted at playing? Was this something that came pretty yes. easily for you? Yeah. So my sister was taking piano lessons. She's seven years older. She walks in the kitchen and they hear her pieces being played on the piano and realize that I had gotten up on the seat and had watched her and listened and picked out her melodies. So that was their first clue that uh, I had some kind of talent. So I started lessons around age five and studied really all through college that, that whole span of time. That's fabulous. And then you picked up cello when you were about 11, correct? Right. Uh, the string teacher just approached me and said, uh, have you ever thought of playing a string instrument? I, I need somebody to play cello. Would you like to come try it? She put it in, you know, my, my hands, my arms, uh, and within five minutes, it felt like home. I just immediately, you know, I picked up guitars, I picked up all kinds of instruments and I can pick things out on them and, but they feel they're not me, uh -huh. but there was something about the cello. I took it home that night and probably played an hour on it, uh, poorly, but there was just an affinity for that instrument that has never left me. That's awesome. So you said your sister was taking piano lessons. Is, is your home family musical or are you sort of the one my, that went that direction? My parents were musical, but untrained, mm -hmm. um, but they loved music. We were avid church goers and they were always active in the church music. My dad was choir director. They sang a lot of solos and duets and trios. And I played for them, I think, starting at age six. So, um, yeah, I would say a very musical family. That sounds like it. So did you always see yourself becoming a composer or what was your no. original intent? No, my dad wanted me to be a dentist, which would have been a huge mistake. Um, <laughs> I would have pulled the wrong tooth. Um, I was going to be a concert pianist. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Got to school. They, they actually offered me either I could major in piano or major in cello. So I didn't want to double major. So I minored in cello. Um, got very interested in chamber music and that influenced my writing a lot. I was in a piano trio for a couple of years, did a lot of literature. Um, I was in another piano trio in Austria and did a lot of studio company for voices. Um, so all of that without knowing it was kind of building, giving me building blocks so that it would eventually feed my writing, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't intentional. So the, the, the writing really was kind of a divine accident that happened in Salzburg. Um, I'd been in Italy three years after my master's um, and I had no inkling then that I would ever write music. It just, I kind of tink tinkered with it and it turned into something. So was the piece you mentioned earlier, was that your very first sort of choral composition or was that just the first one that you had published? 
Right. So I had sent some pieces to John. They were either piano solos or acapella pieces. Mm -hmm. He wasn't really publishing either one and sent them back and said, I would like to see something combining piano with voices. And I had decided to give up. I just thought, eh, it's not meant to be. Um, my wife and I were headed to England for a 10 day trip. And I, I turned to her and I said, you know, maybe, maybe I should just put thy will be done in the mail. Maybe he won't like that either, but it's, you know, kind of on a whim. So put that in the mail. We got back from England. There was a letter waiting for me. He was very excited about the piece. Uh, and that started a mentorship between us and kind of turned my life around. That's awesome. So you, you mentioned your time in Austria. I read also that you spent some time in Italy, right? Right, right. What were you, what were you doing in Italy? Um, I was one of the piano students that was musical, but never had uh, the best technique. And I remember a, uh, a master's student coming up to me after my senior recital and saying, you know, you're probably one of the more musical people in this conservatory, but you're going to regret not working on your technique the rest of your life if you don't get that, if you don't get on top of it. Mm -hmm. He had studied in Italy with our teacher's teacher, who was a Hungarian woman, lived in Milan, Italy. And so I talked to my teacher, Raymond Dudley, and asked if he would consider sending me to her. So really a month or so after my master's uh, uh, exam, uh, I went over and spent three years in study with her. She stripped me back to absolutely five-figure exercises and rebuilt my technique uh, from the ground up. So are you... Are you still pulling from those lessons as you are composing and thinking about how you're composing piano lines? You know, I, th I think it's a combination of her influence, but it's probably more um, the chamber music, the, the accompanying. I played in orchestra a lot, so I, I feel comfortable writing for orchestra. And it's funny, is growing up as a child and a teenager, I didn't really listen to pop music. I would ask for classical records for Christmas, Christmas and my birthday and I probably ended up with maybe 300 LPs and I would listen to those probably in a different way than most people I would um, listen to them over and over almost to the point they were memorized but I think unknowingly I was I was examining them from a, a music theory standpoint and understanding the flow of the harmony or why the melody went up there or down to this day if if one of those pieces comes on the radio that I listened to growing up, I can tell you what the next measure is going to be. Uh, they're still in my brain. So I was storing all this compositional material, but just because my mind thought that way, it was never with an intention of someday I'm going to write music and be published. You know, that was the farthest thing from my mind. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel the same way about being a teacher. I, I remember growing up thinking if I was a teacher, I would be doing this. If I was the yeah. teacher, I would do this, but never with the intent of being a teacher. Right. But now here I am doing it. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to change focus a little bit. So since the primary focus of Beck and Horse Press is on sacred music, much of the music in your own catalog is sacred. However, right. I would, I'd like to actually ask you about a piece of yours that I know and love that is not sacred, which is your musicological journey through the 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> so I've conducted this piece three times, twice with the high school I used to teach. And once the fully orchestrated version with the Ensign Symphony and Chorus in Seattle. So can you tell our listeners about this piece and how or why you came about writing this? <laughs> well, I have, I have a uh, very offbeat sense of humor. So that's part of it. 
Um, you know, the, the director of the, the Columbus Symphonic Chorus just basically said, would you like to write something for the symphony? It was just an open invitation. So I wrote two pieces, actually. One was uh, Carols of the Night, which is O Holy Night and Silent Night. It's a medley. Uh-huh. And then I wrote this piece, uh, just thinking it seemed to have a hook, a kind of a clever idea to it. Yeah. Um, so I was writing that and getting very anxious phone calls from the symphony librarian because we were approaching December and I still didn't have the music to end. So of all things, I was called to be on jury, jury oh, duty. <laughs> so I was in the I was at the point where I was going to take what I the, the piano reduction I made and write those in the style of each composer. So I brought these huge scores to downtown to the uh, the jury room. And, you know, you have four hours. You sit there. Most people watch TV. Right. I sat there with a, a huge pad of of uh, note paper and wrote out orchestrations without a piano. And that week saved my life. Uh, when I when I got through that, I probably spent another week or so, and then I uh, had to write up. This is before uh, finale. Mm-hmm. I had to write every. I had to extract all the parts, but by hand, and handed it in. And um, it turned out to be this unusual, quirky piece that a lot of the symphonies do. You know, every Christmas. So um, that kind of explains that. Yeah, for our listeners that haven't heard this, it's a great piece moving through from Gregorian chant up to Stars and Stripes Forever each day of the 12 days of Christmas, taking a, a different time period of music. It, it's really a fun piece. So you've been doing this composer thing for a while now. If you could travel back in time and talk to, say, an 18 or 19-year-old Craig Courtney, what advice would you give him about your future? Well, I, I'm a chronic worrier, so the first thing would be, don't worry. But of course, my nature, I, I would worry. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know that I would. Um, I feel like every musical experience was a building block that led me to write in the way that I write. Um, so I, I think I just had to go through all those those experiences, um, not realizing what the end result was going to be. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not a I'm not a relaxed performer. Um, I, I perform uh, and do well, but it's never I never enjoy being pushed out on stage. So that really did not fit my personality, even though that's where my life was headed. And then this accidental, you know, situation where I start tinkering, writing music, it ended up being that's me. I mean, that's my personality. I can take my time. I can. Uh, edit and you know fine-tune things and and um, it turns out that's me not the performing thing that I thought I should be Mm -hmm. so would you say that there's something about your compositional style that makes it unique is there a Craig Courtney sound oh boy Um, I think the piano parts are always going to be interesting and colorful and textured because of the music that I've played and Mm -hmm. the genres that I performed and studied. Um, I'm told that my music's very emotional, but that's not, it's not like I try to write emotional music. Um, But a lot of people will say your music 
helps me access feelings or experiences that are buried and I didn't even mm. necessarily know were there but the music somehow gets me in touch with those um I would say that another thing that marks my music pretty significantly is that I've had a lot of loss uh I've lost two children mm. um and I think a lot of that loss comes through my music there's a sort of you know not everything but in a lot of it there's sort of a melancholy also um that people talk about so I, I think that's some of what makes it unique, maybe. Great, thank you. So what do you do when you're not musicking? What sort of hobbies do you have outside of music? Um, exercise, uh, gym is a big part for me. Just, uh, I enjoy pushing myself and uh, the challenge of it, trying to do better each time uh, is fun. I like to shop, I'm a big shopper. Which oh, really? Really superficial, <laughs> but that's it. Uh, shopping for shopping for anything or shopping anything. for like to shop. Yeah. Oh, wow. uh, and then uh, family, family comes first. So, you know, we ha had four boys. Um, we now have two grandchildren. And so uh, family is probably the most central thing to me of, of anything. That's awesome. Well, I got one more question for you before we take a quick break. Sure. What is one of your favorite choral pieces from another composer that you think we should all go check out? Hmm. Check out Dan Forrest's um, Shalom. Hmm. I think that's the title. I, I, to me, it's one of the most beautiful things he's ever written. It's just hauntingly beautiful. And uh, everybody should check that out. I, I, it's just, I can hardly put into words how gorgeous that piece is. Well, excellent. I love Dan's music, so I will definitely go look yeah. that one up. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Craig's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Craig Courtney. We're going to start today with While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. We're going to take a little trip back to Christmas. Uh, so this is a beautiful setting of this carol. It's much different tune than we might be familiar with, though. So what was your intent as you were writing this particular carol? I love the challenge of taking something well-known and turning it around so that it has a whole different sense about it. So this is a, a pastoral. It's kind of a, a painting of the shepherds being out in the field with starlight, you know, the, the opening. All that high stuff is supposed to be starlight mm -hmm. um and this mood of it's contemplative it's thoughtful um they're the angels appearing which would be startling but immediately they say don't be afraid and so if anything it's it's uh what it's kind of a joyful carol but turned contemplative i guess um if that makes sense mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love those moments when the chord just really opens up, the sopranos soar up. I, I just feel the sort of the glory of the angel's visit. Uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. beautiful moments. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take some time here. We're going to listen to While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. Thank you. 
All right, next we're going to turn to A Better Resurrection. So the text for this piece comes from poet Christina Rossetti, whose poetry I've heard that you have uh, connected to for a long time. Yes. What is it that draws you to her poetry in general and this text in particular? You know, um, I find her incredibly honest about her spiritual poverty. It's not, it's sacred poetry, but it's never, um, I don't know, pablum. It's never, uh, I'm happy all the day. The kind of hymns that we sing in church a lot are, are sort of Jesus took hold of my life and solved all my problems. She is um, working through her own spiritual poverty, uh, but still having hope. And I love that combination uh, of hers. And it, it, it is so true of this particular poem that she wrote. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for text painting. Uh, the imagery you can kind of paint in the vocal texture or the lines. And uh, it's just rich with that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, probably one of my favorite pieces I've written. So what is a, what is a Better Resurrection about? How would you sum that up? Um, it's funny. She'll, she'll say in so many words that she is spiritually impoverished, but then she ends each verse with the first verse ends with, Oh, Jesus quicken me, which is an odd word. If you think about it and my rhythm on that unquicken is different than the rest of the piece. Um, I guess give me life is what she's saying. And the second one has imagery again about, fading, dying, um, nature, uh, but ends it with, oh, Jesus, rise in me. And so it talks about spring. So there's that hope theme. Uh And the last one, and I think this is probably the most interesting, is she compares her life to a broken bowl that can't hold water. Um, And she asks Jesus to cast it in fire and and melt and, and remold it into something regal. And the last line is, oh, Jesus, drink of me. We normally think of communion where we drink of the body of Christ. This is asking Christ to drink of us, Mm. which you can kind of contemplate that forever. And I I think never plumb the depths of it, you know. Mm. Um, So it's a very artistic, metaphorical approach to a theme that is common in Christianity. But she makes you look at it in a completely different way. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are going to listen to A Better Resurrection with text here from poet Christina Rossetti.
All right, our third piece today is the invitation from Divine Encounter. So this is the first movement from a three-movement work for SATB Choir, and one of many combinations of instruments, uh, organ or piano paired with either string quartet, brass sextet, or full orchestra. I really, really enjoyed the jubilant invitation at the beginning of this piece. Come, you who thirst, come to the water. Could you tell us about writing this piece as well as the, the whole Divine Encounter? Yeah, so, so this was a commission for a three-movement work. Um, and so I wanted some kind of a narrative. I don't just like to write three pieces that you can slap together and aren't really related. So this is the, the narrative of God inviting us to encounter him and then uh, us offering ourselves up in response to the invitation and then God putting his hand on us on what we've offered him and blessing it and multiplying it kind of like the, the little boy with the fish and the bread. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first movement. And normally um, come you who thirst come to the water is uh, a sweet kind of lyric, gentle piece. I don't know that I've heard something quite this boisterous. Uh, there's the water theme in the, in the keyboard or the organ. Um, but I, I, you know, I could not, find a melody that suited me for that first part so i went to the other verse that it's based on and that is seek the lord while he may be found um uh calling him while he's near and so i set that melody first and liked it i felt like that worked really well i i turned the person of the of the verses from third person to first person so god again is it's god using the me pronoun mm -hmm. Um, once I had that, I based the first melody, the A melody actually comes from the B melody. Mm. So I wrote the piece backwards. I, I couldn't find a beginning <laughs> I liked. So I wrote the middle and the middle kind of informed both the beginning and the end of the piece. Oh, that's great. Well, let's listen for that as we listen to the invitation.
All right, our fourth piece today is Ukrainian Alleluia. So this piece seems especially apropos now because of the conflict currently happening in Ukraine as we record this in 2022. But you wrote this much earlier, 2007, I believe. Uh, so what was the circumstances surrounding writing this piece? Um, I was approached by an organization called Music and World Cultures. And um, I think they're based out of Minneapolis, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, anyway, they um, the purpose of the organization is to aid Christian musicians that have been persecuted. And they work with countries all over the world. In the case of Ukraine, because of their occupation by different countries, mostly Russia and Germany, um, they lost a lot of their rights. And so in the case of Russia, uh, if you were a professed born again Christian, uh, of course they had their state religion, uh, which was different, but you were denied uh, music study and you uh, sometimes you had your instruments confiscated. Um, and so what people would do is sometimes bury their instruments in hopes that someday they'd be free and could dig them up. So then the wall came down, uh, Russia was divided up, Ukraine became a free nation. And so people had these old instruments, but they hadn't been able to have any training. And so what we would do, I was part of a five-person team. There was a uh, orchestra director, choir director, composer, handbell director, and a voice teacher. We went over and worked in two different cities with maybe 20 people. These were the hungriest students I've ever met in my life. They hung mm. literally on every word you said. We would take over valve oil or uh, E-strings or... Uh, used instruments. We might have a viola. And when we would hand it to these people, they would literally sob mm. with joy that anybody would do that for them. And so while I was there, I learned stories of the persecution they had gone through, um, the religious persecution, and um, a lot of the tragedy that happened. And yet they, they never abandoned their faith. I mean, their faith is very strong. So as I was flying home from Ukraine, I, I had this idea of, is it possible to write an Alleluia that is for a suffering nation rather than a typical heaven theme or hopeful theme? Could it have the sadness, but also the strength and the hope that I found in the Ukrainian people? Mm -hmm. So that's really where it came from. Um, I was invited years later to come back for a choir festival um, in that was in Lutsk. And um, it was kind of an open call to people that I, I think this may have been their first festival. They didn't know how many people would show up. A thousand Ukrainians came. Wow. And I got to stand up in a, a freezing hall in November that had no heat. You could see your breath. The, the people were standing in the aisles. I, it would have never passed fire code in the United States. <laughs> And I led them in this piece. And if you know it, know the piece, there is a, there's a, a cellarando section that builds and builds and builds and gets more and more dissonant and ends on this chord. It's fortissimo. The choir is practically screaming this, this dissonant chord that kind of embodies the rage and the um, suffering and the sadness of their existence and when i cut off the choir 
most of the of the auditorium went <gasps> it's as if they understood exactly what that chord meant i've never experienced that from an audience before that they were so um i guess it was so transformative or it, it stated so clearly what they maybe felt but had never been able to express that they just gasped mm. um i'll never forget that uh but that, that was an amazing experience. So really I've been there twice, once to teach and then once to conduct a thousand voice choir. That's great. Have, have other choirs in Ukraine yeah. performed this piece? And Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I still have friends there. I still have friends that have taken their wives and their children to the border and have, have turned back to fight. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people are, are still there that I knew and know. So um, I have a particular place in my heart, I guess, for what's going on right now. Absolutely. All right. Well, with all that in mind, we are going to listen to Ukrainian Alleluia.
So Craig, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Um, I just finished a piece that's going to be in print probably in two months. It's called, um, I'm old and my mind gets confused. I'm trying to think what the name of it is. It's to sing once more words by Jonathan Cook, who I've worked with several times, but, but the idea of it is teach us to sing songs that we've forgotten or songs that we haven't been able to sing or songs that have been silenced and teach us how to sing again in unit in, in community, I guess. So, when the piece starts out, they hum with their mouth shut. Uh, that becomes an interlude that appears throughout the piece, but gradually the, the hum turns to a ooh, which opens the mouth slightly, and then ends up as an ah, where the mouth is completely open. And so it's, it's as if people are getting the courage to raise their voices and mm. make sound. Uh, and it's ultimately about praising God, but it's this idea of, I guess, response to COVID, really. Yeah. Um, just finished a setting of Psalm 55. Uh, and then I have a piece that I, it's going to be used as a commission for the Ubi Latte Conference, Joe Martin in Texas every summer. It's their 25th anniversary. So I'm writing a piece for that, that will be about the theme is music. So those are kind of the things currently. Fabulous. Well, if my listeners want to learn more about you and your music, where is the best place for them to look? Uh, go to beckenhorsepress.com. Uh, most of my pieces are there, although I'm published with about eight publishers, maybe. Uh, yeah, so think, not there. Yeah, I think the musicological journey is Hinshaw. Right, yeah. right. Um, they can listen to audio files there. They can, uh, you know, get PDFs to look at. So that's probably the best place to start. Fantastic. Are you out there on social media or anything? Um, not a lot. Uh, and I want to be better about that. I don't have my own personal website, which is another thing I should do. Um, <laughs> so I hope to be doing more of that in the future. All right. We'll keep a lookout for it. Well, hey, listeners out there, show your support for Movable Dough by getting the logo, put on a hat, a shirt, a hoodie, or something else. Let people know how much you enjoy the program and help spread the word about these awesome composers. Visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough and click where it says merch. Well, Craig Courtney, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. My guest today was composer Craig Courtney. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.